Good morning. I'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapters 5 through 7 very soon. So if you would like to follow along, please turn there or you can just listen as I read. 1 Samuel chapters 5 through 7. That's our passage for this morning. If you'd like to prepare throughout the week for the, the coming Sunday, uh, Ed Sherwood actually is planning to preach from Colossians, and so uh, watch for that passage. I believe tomorrow it'll be on the website. Appreciate his willingness to step in and other, other men who are capable of doing so, but please pray for Ed as well, that his strength and health would be there, and as he, I know he has already started preparing to preach the word among us. In 1 Samuel 5 to 7, watch for the word hand. It appears at least three times in each of these three chapters. And of course, uh, God, especially God the Father, is spirit. He does not have hands. But what does the text mean when it speaks of the hand of the Lord? Well, it's speaking of his strength, of what he is doing. But hand does not only refer to God throughout these chapters, it also refers to others. So just listen for that. We're going to go through how the Philistines respond to God and then how the Israelites respond to God in these three chapters. First Samuel 5, starting in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? 
They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him with a guilt, guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as of Egyptians and Pharaoh harden their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the ark, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so, and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To whom shall we go up away from us? To whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kiriath saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. And the men of kiriath came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From, that, from the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. 
and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. I was out on a new trail recently, just running along a road, and New is not exactly exciting for me because you never know what you're going to encounter. And sure enough, I come along this very suspicious-looking house with an angry dog. I don't know that I have an innate automatic fear of dogs. And you might say, well, you're, you're big enough, you can handle a dog. But when you're, when you're just without any protection, no car to hide behind, no way to speed away. I have my cell phone with me that's going to do very little good with an angry German shepherd. And so I'm approaching this house and I hear this dog who definitely doesn't want me to approach and pass by this house. And you have some choices before you. I have in my mind the distance I want to, to, to make. I don't like repeating a whole lot. So those kind of things are going through my mind. What am I going to do if this dog just jumps over the fence or is angry enough to just barge through it? The fence did not exactly look healthy. Those are the kind of thoughts that go through my mind as I'm plodding away on the road. Because I have no expectation of calming the dog down. It's merely a matter of will the fence contain the dog long enough, long enough for me to pass by. You know, I think people, as they experience life, especially when bad things start happening to them, they might claim that they're atheists, but I think many people, at least at some point in life, they don't compare God to an angry dog. 
but they start to wonder, how do I get his attention off of me? Or how do I make it so that I am not under whatever is causing him to do this to me? So they're not asking, how do I appease, appease the angry dog? They're asking in some way, in their own language, how do I appease an angry God? As we look at the text this morning, I think we could summarize it as two case studies. And those two case studies show how different nations respond to the judgment of God. Neither nation does well at the beginning. One nation, by the grace of God, has hope at the end. But I would encourage you to see in this text before you how people are trying to grapple with the judgment of God, and they don't do well at the beginning. So learn from them. Two different nations don't know how to respond to God's judgment, but by the grace of God, his servant offers a way forward at the end. So we're, once again, we're dealing with a heavy passage, but Thankfully, I can say by chapter 7, there starts to be hope. And we'll look forward to that. But before we get to the place of hope, we have some more judgment to walk through here. Case study number one is the Philistine nation. And in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 5, you see the humiliation of Dagon. I could call it the execution of Dagon. His neck is broken. Head is severed, hands are severed, and as you walk through this, God has different ways of showing how inept and powerless idols are. Here's one passage that does that. And it's, it, it has some humor to it if you look at it in one sense, but then if you realize these are real people who actually have their some kind of confidence in this Dagon, and perhaps that brings some gravity to the text for you. The Philistines are excited. They've taken a huge bit of plunder here. The enemy, God, or a representation of him. And so they, they prepare the display and they set this emblem of their enemy's God in the place of humiliation next to their God. Everything's ready. Except when the people of Ashdod return early the next day, they maybe use some healthy imagination here. They have to close down the, the display for just a minute while they reorganize. And the futility of what they're doing is on display instead because in verse 3, they have to put their God back in his place. Very interesting language there. Have you ever had to put your God back in, back in its place? Your false God? God takes some very intentional work to perhaps show you how futile the idols that you trust in are and yet you diligently try to put them back in their place. 
They need your help, of course, because they are powerless. So they put them back. They're not learning their lesson here. As we see later in chapter 6, perhaps it's just coincidence. But yet this passage goes on. And so now you have, the, the then afterwards, after they've done this, the next morning, Dagon is back in the prostate, prostrate position in front of the ark, and things are worse now. I would draw your attention back to the end of chapter 4, by the way. This isn't the first being, can I say, that has a broken neck. Eli broke his neck. There's more of God's sovereignty and providence to work through there. But now Dagon has a broken neck. Things are bad. And so you have this verse 5 of, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter don't tread on the threshold. It, your lesson is not learned. Just coming away from this with more superstition is not going to help you. But that's where the Philistian, people of Philistia are. The hand of the Lord is heavy against the people of the city where the ark is. God is ter terrifying the people. He's afflicting them with tumors. And things grow worse and worse. And so we start to see the judgment of God more fully against these people. It's not just that their idol is humiliated. It's the people are being afflicted physically. People are dying. And as the ark is passed from one city to the next, more people die. More people get sick. The hand of God is mentioned multiple times. It gets so bad that when it when it gets to Ekron, when the ark arrives at Ekron, the people are crying out. They've already heard the word. They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. This isn't a victory lap. They're not rejoicing. This is terror. And they don't know what to do. Send it away. Return it to its place. There's deathly panic that is happening. The hand of God is very heavy. And when the judgment of God falls and the people do not have faith, this is what it looks like. There's hopelessness. There's terror. And there's a desire not to go towards the true God, but what? To push that God away. But there are some, and we get to chapter 6 here, there are some who try to appease God. There's this call in verse 2 for the priests and the diviners. What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? Well, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him with a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. What's the goal? The goal is not worship for them. The goal is appeasement. Do what you can to stop this madness. And again, there's sadness as we follow what they do. Verse 5, So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Maybe you're like, well, okay, at least they want glory to God. But notice the next word. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. 
This is the best that man-made religion can do. Do this and this and this, and perhaps, maybe, that's the best that man-made religion can ever offer. There are no promises that actually come true from the true God through man-made religion. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Judgment of God is pretty thorough here. You, your gods, your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Verse 6. After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Look, remember the Egyptians. They, they fought and fought and fought, but then in the end they still sent the Israelites away. And as they sent the Israelites away, we all know that the nation was devastated. We're better than that. We don't have hard hearts like the Egyptians. Send them away. Send this, send this God away now. And then we can get back to life. That's the reasoning. And to do this, just to make sure, they set up a test. And apparently a test like this has some comparison to divination. You would try to set up a test in such a way that there were only two possible responses. And the one response would show then that you need to make Conclusion A, the other response would show you need to make conclusion B. And so they set up this test, and they take two cows that are milking cows with calves. Now, I'm not a farmer, but apparently when a cow has a calf, and the calf is hungry, what's the calf going to do? Call for its mother, and the mother's going to hear that, and the two shall meet. So they take these two milking cows that have never been trained to pull a cart and they send and they and they set it up so that if these cows go away from their calves pulling this cart with the ark on it towards the right place Beth Shemesh basically against their natural instinct. If they do all of that, okay, then we know that it's God who has been bringing this judgment. But if they act like we know they should act, then we know that what we've been experiencing is just coincidence and we don't need to take it seriously. In other words, they stack the deck. And not towards Israel, not towards the one true God. They set up their test. And and the test, of course, does not go as they would like it to go. The men did so, verse 10, and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart, shut up their calves at home. Calves can be very loud still. Their bleeding could carry through the air. The cows would be experiencing great uh, discomfort over time. They'd want to go back. But the cows, verse 12, went straight in the direction of Bethshemesh, away from natural instinct, along the highway, lowing as they went. If you ask me later, why were they, why does it say they were lowing? I don't know. That's a detail there. You can think about that. The bigger point is that this is going as God plans. He is showing that he's in control. 
And so the cart gets to Beth Shemesh. I would just direct your eyes first down to verse 16. What's the response from the Philistines? When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Do you see faith? Now that their divination tests, at least according to their standards, proved conclusively that the, the God of Israel has brought this judgment against them. Now that the facts show the one true God is doing this, do you see faith in the part of the Philistines? No. What do you see? Relief. <laughs> we can go back to our place. The ark is gone. See, the Philistines did what they needed to return to life as normal. That's what they did. They wanted to return to life without this God. They wanted to return to life with their own idols. They just wanted to get back to normal life. Their goal was not the glory of God. They were not ready to submit to this powerful God whose hand had been heavy upon them. They just wanted out. I would encourage us to be careful of pride, going back to verse 6. They think they're better than the Egyptians. They're going to avoid further judgment. But when you do that, as I've heard it said, cruise control type of comparison and just look at what other people are doing, this is not what they need in order to be right with God. This is not what they need to be out of God's judgment and having learned their lesson. They just want relief. Maybe that's you this morning. You just want to feel better. You don't want to have to think about the possibility that God might be angry with you. You just want to be able to breathe. And if you're trying to look for facts around you to give evidence and conclusively prove which way you should take, you're looking in the wrong direction. If you want to compare yourself to others and say, well, at least I'm doing better than they are, that's not going to make you right with God. That's not going to solve your most pressing and important problem. In the end, it's not proof that you need. It's not proof that the Philistines need it. What are they missing? They're missing faith. They are not rightly humbled by the judgment of God. I'd also encourage us to see in chapter 6, they do their best to appease God, but again, they look horizontally to find the answer. Who around us can tell us how to get right with God? And if you keep your gaze horizontal and just look to man for the answer and how to appease God, you will never find the right answer. Ultimately, that answer must come from the God whom you have offended. So, yes, the Philistines are out of this particular judgment of God, but have they learned their lesson rightly? No. The worst thing, in some ways, that could happen to you 
is to experience the consequences of your choices, to see how bad life can get, to gain relief and never deal with your relationship with God. Maybe you get a few more days on this earth to do as you please. Maybe you get a little bit more time and a little bit of opportunity to breathe. But you don't solve the eternal problem of your broken relationship with God. So by the end, by the middle end of chapter six, we're getting to the Israelites and we're getting to our second case study. The ark comes to Beth Shemesh. And the people are rejoicing to receive it. This is a meaningful thing for them. It comes along during wheat harvest. They lift up their eyes. They see the ark, verse 13 of chapter 6. It comes to the field of Joshua. A stone's there. They, they split up the wood of the, ark, uh, of the cart and offer the cows for a burnt offering. And then you see, it's not mentioned of the men of Beth Shemesh, but who are they called in verse 15? The Levites. This was a Levite town. Joshua 21, verses 13 to 16, you can check that on your own if you'd like, but this was to be a place that was left to the descendants of Aaron. That's an important point. It's going to help fit things together for us. It comes to this place and so they're responding with sacrifice. You, you might say, that's, that's good. Rejoicing. There's a little bit more commentary given, started in verse 17, about the golden tumors. Doesn't really make sense to me. Why would you make representations of God's judgment? This, this is rather disgusting, but... Golden mice, this is an attempt, again, to appease God from the Philistines. But then verse 19, and this is unexpected. You learn that God has struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark, and so 70 of them die. And you might even have a, a note there, there's some uncertainty about how many exactly are killed. And by some accounts, this could be Tens of thousands of people who are dying because of judgment. It's hard to put that together. Beth Shemesh would not have had that kind of population. Not nearly. But again, bigger picture, there's judgment from God upon these Israelites when the ark is being returned. And so they say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? I think that's showing their confusion. What is wrong? We thought things were good. The ark is coming back. We're rejoicing. God is good. And now we can look around and there are dead bodies. So from the Philistines, you see terror, but no faith as God brings judgment. What do you see from the Israelites at first? Confusion? They don't know what's going on. And yet I draw you back to verse 15 and that this is a Levitical town. Why does that matter? The Levites should know better how to handle the ark. I can't explain fully of what was 
happening with looking upon the ark? Does that mean that they opened it up and looked inside? Does that just mean they actually saw it? I don't know if it was covered when the Philistines had it or if it was uncovered, how all that happened. But this we can say, if you go back again on your own to Numbers 4, 17 to 20, and we're to read that, there are specific directions given about how things should be done so that uh, uh, those who should not see the ark don't see it. Because if they see the ark, then God will bring judgment upon those people who look upon the ark. So putting these things together, people who should have known better treated the ark wrongly and God brought judgment. And it was severe judgment, but it was judgment that he had already warned them he would bring. And those who should have known better did not rightly receive the ark. They respond with confusion. They say, to whom shall this ark go up away from? Basically, where can we send the ark? So they send messengers, verse 21, to the inhabitants of kiriath Look, the Philistines have returned the ark. Come down and take it. Now you see another group of people trying to get rid of the ark. So we could ask the question, do they know how to respond to God's judgment? If they do know, they're not taking that path. Instead, if we look at the text, it seems that they are confused and they just want the ark gone. And so now the men of kiriath have it. You could say, well, why isn't going back to Shiloh? The, the general thinking there is that Shiloh was probably destroyed after the ark was captured. It doesn't go back there. It goes to kiriath And if you put together different things, it ends up staying there about 100 years. Who is it that actually brings the ark out of kiriath to Jerusalem? It's David. So it's there for a while. But this is not a time of rejoicing. As we get to chapter 7, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Twenty years of lament. But then we have Samuel. He's been absent from the narrative for a little while now. Chapter 7, verse 3. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, again, remember what I said. You look to others around. You look to mankind for the answer of how to get right to God. You're not going to find the right answer. But here's the servant of the Lord, and he's bringing the word of the Lord. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Here is a message of hope. If you really want to go back to the one true God, this is how you do it. So you have tragedy and inaction at the end of chapter 6 into chapter 7. It is terrible, but now we see that repentance is possible. This call for returning to the Lord with all of their hearts. Also a call for monotheism. 
Put away the gods that are among you. Which, on the one hand, is just baffling, right? Why would they still have other gods among them? Their god has just handily defeated Dagon. I don't know if word is passed through passed along, that kind of thing has a tendency to spread. Did you hear what happened to Dagon? Maybe the priests tried to put the kibosh on that, but I doubt that they were successful. And so you have this call, return to the Lord. Put away the foreign gods that are among you. May your heart be devoted exclusively to the God of Israel. And there's more drama yet to come. Yes, we learn in verse 4 that the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they serve the Lord only. That's a fantastic step. But it's going to be tested. Samuel says, gather everybody to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they do that and they pour out uh, uh, water before the Lord. They fast before him. They admit we have sinned against the Lord. Confession, nationally, these are all good things. But the Philistines still have their spies out. Verse 7, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they see an opportunity. Great, all the people are there. It's time to strike. Lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Again, some time has passed. You might very well have transition of leadership on both sides. Samuel is newly to his office. And when the people hear that the Philistines are coming, they're afraid. But look at what they do with their fear this time. The people of Israel said to Samuel, verse 8, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel offers a sacrifice. He cries out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answers. And even as Samuel is sacrificing, the Philistines come to attack. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. I'll just pull us back again to the prayer of Hannah back in chapter 2, Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Dagon, you were broken to pieces. Philistia, God is thundering against you from heaven. God has brought his judgment. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. It's a victory. And Samuel sets up a stone to rejoice in this. If you've wondered why we sing sometimes with the word Ebenezer, traced back to 1 Samuel 7, stone of help, a stone of remembrance as well that God has helped us. And the Philistines are subdued. Israel did what was needed to return to God, but 
before they returned to God, what did they have to experience? What did they have to go through before they actually responded rightly to God's servant? It took loss. It took time. They had to be humbled, but they did eventually return to God. They did what was needed to return, but they kind of had to learn their lesson along the way in order to come to the point of repentance, of believing in God. I'd like to do some comparison for you. So if you have your text in front of you, back in chapter 4, verse 2, this is before Israel lost the ark. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, chapter 4, verse 2. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated. Verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us? And then in the next battle, down in verse 10, the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Okay, now back in chapter 7. I'm not big on the you know, having to make people turn pages, but this isn't too bad. You're just doing a page or two. So back in verse, chapter 7, verse 10, Samuel offered, was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. So chapter 4, Israel's defeated twice. Chapter 7, the Philistines are defeated. Okay, there's one comparison. Back in chapter 4, verse 3, how does Israel respond to that first defeat? Manipulation. Or you could say rabbit foot theology, good luck charm, whatever you want to say. They're trying to bring their God in a box along with them so they can win. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and save us. Okay, that's chapter 4, verse 3. But now, chapter 7, verse 3, Samuel says, If you're returning, put away the foreign gods. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Down in verse 8, The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. This is not rabbit foot theology any longer. This is going to the one true God and trusting in him. Okay, back in chapter 4, another comparison. Chapter 4, verse 6. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? They hear of the shouting. And then that's when they have their big, let's be men and fight group chant, and then they go out and win. Back in chapter 7, verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, okay, they, they once again, they're hearing something and then they're acting. Only this time they go to their defeat. And then to me, the clincher of comparisons, chapter 4, verse 21. There's a naming, Ichabod. A child is named Ichabod, no glory. The glory has departed from Israel. And at the 
In chapter 7, verse 12, there's another naming. Ebenezer. Stone of help. Why all the comparison? Isn't it a wonderful thing that God gave Israel another opportunity? Isn't God merciful and patient with his people? They totally blundered through chapter 4. It was terrible. God's glory does not depend on that, though. He can handle himself, and he does. He takes care of the ark. His people have some hard lessons to learn. But by the grace of God, we see them actually learning them. 1 Samuel 7 is a wonderful chapter. Because the Israelites actually respond to God the right way. They don't do that very often, so take note when they do. So there's a message, I believe, for you this morning, even in that comparison. Have you been fighting against the work of God in your life? Maybe you would be very quick to stand up and say, God has not been fair to me continually. I've been under trouble from God. You say there's a God, well, this is what he's done to me. Yes, there are times when God brings us to experience the consequences of our own choices. There are times when God brings just a touch of the fuller judgment, perhaps, that is coming to us all. Yes, God providentially works all things. But if you're just responding in anger or being terrified by that, constantly trying to run from it and be out from under the hand of God and doing anything you can to push God away from you and to get his gaze away from you. You can keep looking to yourself for the answer. You can look to others for the answer, but you will never find the answer that brings true, lasting peace with the one true God just on your own. You will never be successful in pushing off from yourself the hand of God. His condemnation will remain on you. And his judgment will be coming. And yet we see the Israelites here face terrible judgment from God. But then they hear one day Samuel, this young man who's been showing so much promise. Then one day they hear from Samuel, the servant of the Lord, and they hear a message of hope. If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart. And he guides them through. So I would proclaim to you this morning, there is still for you the possibility of hope. Would you be out from under the hand of God, from under his condemnation? This is not a promise that life will then be easy afterwards on this life. This is to you the offer of reconciliation with God so that you can be at peace with the infinite, all-powerful, all-wise, loving, holy God. And you can know him as your father, and never again be under his condemnation. This is a message of hope. 
The Israelites knew genuine repentance and they saw God work amazingly to bring deliverance to their nation as they returned to him with all of their heart. That's on the national scale. That's the nation of Israel. I know it's in a different time period, but this is what we see from God. The people did not respond to him rightly, and yet he still spoke to them the exact message they needed to hear to be right with him. What will it take to bring you to repentance? It does not take more evidence. Don't fall into the trap of the Philistines. Let's put out some tests and see how God responds, and then I'll know. That's not going to solve your problem. Now, what you need is to hear the word of God, the message that through Christ there is hope. Be reconciled with God. We'll go there in just a minute. But please, if you have been bearing under the heavy hand of God, and it could be anybody here, you could be putting on a perfect act, have everybody fooled, and yet know in your heart that you have no peace with God. There is hope for you. Grieving is not enough, by the way. I turn your eyes back to chapter 7, verse 2. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They knew things weren't right, and yet they were just stuck there. And stuck there in a bad way. They, they knew that things were not right, but they what do we learn from Samuel's message? They still had foreign gods in their midst. Their idolatry continued. They were trying to, to make themselves feel better or do better in life however they could. And it wasn't working. Return to the Lord with all your heart. How much will it take to break you and your pride until you finally call upon God and turn back to him? Really, what, what Samuel is showing here to the nation, return to him. The nation had said before that they would follow God as he had said, but then they departed, so he's calling them back. The call to you, though, is to turn to God. Turn away from any self-dependence that you have, any of this comparison like the Philistines did. Well, I'm not as bad as they are, so I think I'll be okay. God will go easy on me because all his wrath is going to be against those really bad people. It's not the teaching of the Bible. So is God to you the angry, God, the angry dog that terrorizes you? I want to turn to a New Testament passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says in verse 12, Sorry, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is an important point. It is not that reconciliation happens because we go to God to fix things. It is that God comes to us. We have no hope of reconciliation unless the Father sends the Son. Without Christ, there is no hope of being out from under God's hand of judgment. Without God's initiative, there is no salvation. And so Jesus came and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's explained a little bit more fully as we keep going. So now down to verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It's a beautiful message. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal. God is the one, again, who's making the appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you are hearing this, there is hope. You can be made right with God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a great exchange. Christ dying as a sinner, so that as people put their faith in Christ, they can be counted righteous. Great exchange. There is only one way that you can be made right with God. There's only one way to reconciliation with God. And it's not through your own contrived offerings to him. It's not through some advice from some person anywhere on the planet. It's only from God through Christ. Jesus dying as a sinner so that those who trust in him, those who turn to him, those who believe in him are counted by God as righteous, are made right with God, are reconciled with God and have peace. That's the only way. How did we get here? From 1 Samuel. Well, God, through his servant, brought his nation to himself. And now we see in 2 Corinthians 5, God, through his son, brings his people to himself. And he gives them peace. Are you experiencing the heavy hand of God? There is hope for you, but it is only through Christ. There's one final part of this, though. I'm not preaching 2 Corinthians now, but if you just go a little bit further to chapter 7, there's direction about godly grief. This is not just a message for those who have never turned to Christ. I believe it's also a message for those who have started to turn towards other things. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, that starts to describe two types of grief, 
godly grief and worldly grief. And really my point there is that, believer, we must keep this truth before us. Because it's very possible as we start to love sin more and more and gather those idols to us to try to make ourselves feel better, it's very possible that we too start to be confused by the consequences we then face, the heaviness of sin, how our relationship with God is hindered. We too need this truth that God is the reconciling God Rejoice in your peace through Christ. It's not an accident that just a little bit later, after this reconciliation passage, Paul turns to describe godly and worldly grief. Hate your sin. Turn to your God. Rejoice in the peace that he has given to you, believer. But it takes work to experience and live from that peace. Sin must be your enemy. You must hate all things which try to take a chunk of your heart. Cling to God. Rejoice in him. Live by faith and see what he does for his people because it is truly glorious. God, thank you that you give the way forward. It's so easy for us to acquire idols which control and bind us. We know better. We know these idols are not the answer. Their hope is false. Their comfort is empty. They can do nothing good for us. So help us as your people to rejoice in you, our God, who has reconciled, made us right with you. Help, please, Bring those who are knowing, experiencing under your condemnation even now who have had no peace through this message. Bring them to repentance. Help them to turn to Christ, to understand that one has already paid their judgment, their, 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 the penalty for their sin, if they but turn to him. That there is no need for them to stay as enemies before you. Bring them to the point of faith, help them to cry out to you and to know peace with you. How we long for others to hear and believe in our Savior and to know the peace that you have given to us. So we plead for you to do that work. In Jesus' name, amen.